0: This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I am Jolan Sami, your co-host joined by Natasha Sardoch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit.
1: America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. Visit iLeadersSummit.org.
0: This weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan and the Midwest, we're delighted to welcome to this program an intellectual giant and an extraordinary leader, Professor Ruth Weiss. Natasha Serdoch and I had the great honor of visiting with Professor Weiss in Jerusalem on the eve of our Jerusalem Leaders Summit event with Governor Phil Bryant and during her time speaking at events and being interviewed by media groups in Israel. Professor Ruth Wise is the Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Tikva Fund. Recently retired from her position as the Martin Peretz Professor of Yiddish Literature and Professor of Comparative Literature at Harvard, Professor Wise is currently Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Tikva Fund. She has written a number of great books, and we encourage our readers to certainly go online uh, to your respective uh, search engines and look for her books. Professor Weiss received the National Medal of Arts and National Humanities from President George W. Bush. And it is our great honor to welcome Professor Weiss to America's Roundtable. Welcome indeed, Professor Weiss.
1: Welcome, Professor
2: Weiss. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Very glad to be
1: with you. Thank you. Uh, In your brilliant and thought-provoking piece called The Dark Side of Holocaust Education, published in the National Affairs in Autumn Edition last year in 2020, you raised an important issue, which is not obvious at the first sight, and that is that Holocaust education is routinely appropriated for activist agendas. And in your piece, you say, I quote, Weaponizing the Holocaust against Nazism detracts attention from other ongoing anti-Jewish and anti-Western forces. It thus becomes an instrument of politics under the pretense of avoiding politics. Demonizing the right minimizes anti-liberal forces of the left and conceals the record of applied socialism as well as that of Middle Eastern varieties of anti-Jewish politics. And you also mentioned that in reality, anti-Semitism in the United States has spread in tandem with increased teaching about the Holocaust. Professor Weiss, could you kindly share with our audience your thoughts about these developments happening in America today?
2: Uh, Well, uh, thank you for the opportunity of doing so. It's obviously a very large order to do so orally, and uh, let me just say that one of the reasons that one carves out an article is because one doesn't want to um, miss anything, and one doesn't want to use words lightly. So, um, so I thank you for referring to the article, and I would refer people back to it if this is not clear enough. But here is the thing: antisemitism is a huge subject. And I think that one has to begin by making certain kinds of distinctions. There, um, there is a difference between anti-Semitism, the Holocaust, and Holocaust education. These are three different entities, and each of them exists in its own right, and the connection between them is not always clear so let's just say that anti-semitism first i define it narrowly as the organization of politics against the jews So what i am trying to argue is that anti-semitism is a political instrument it serves certain countries it serves certain political ideologies it serves certain groups And it is extraordinarily usable, user-friendly, for groups of both the left and the right. Anti-Semitism was actually forged in the 1870s in Germany in a very precise political context. What people very rarely uh, bother to think about is that it was formed at the very time when Germany was becoming more liberal. More democratic. And in fact, the founders of antisemitism, Wilhelm Marr in particular, who wrote about this, and co- I think he is the one who actually created the term antisemitism, he wanted to argue that this has nothing to do with Christian uh, hatred of the Jews, a Christian antipathy towards the Jews as the, killer, uh, as the killers of Jesus. No, this is just a political phenomenon. And why do we need anti-Semitism? Because, as he put it, the Jews are conquering Germany from within. So here is an astonishing reversal. Here they were worried about Jews. Why? Because with the uh, advent of democracy, with everyone being equally able to compete freely in a free society, Jews were doing phenomenally well. Uh, They were entering law, they were entering medicine, they were certainly entering the culture, they were entering journalism, every field, right? Even the military, uh, when they were allowed to do so. So, Uh, what anti-Semitism became is an ideology that said we have to defeat the Jews because otherwise they are conquering Germany from within. Now, this is quite an astonishing reversal, you see. They wanted to get rid of the Jews, but they accused the Jews of being the ones to conquer Germany. So here is an ideology which has a function in politics. So my first appeal would be to political science, uh, to people who think about these things, to think about the functions of anti-Semitism. Whom does it serve? Why is it useful? And I think that if we jump now into even contemporary our contemporary sphere, it seems to be useful in the intersectional uh, movement because All these groups that feel grievance and want to blame someone, they want to hold someone else responsible for everything that is going wrong in their own society, in their own midst. So that you have, uh, if I may uh, just begin there, Um, You have many elements within the women's movement, which is a movement that claims that it is uh, women are not being recognized as equals, women are still being um, earning less, and so on and so forth. It is a movement, part of it is a movement of grievance. Well, this movement of grievance has become part of that intersectional movement. So has the African American movement. It's not pleasant to speak of the fact, but in fact, anti-Semitism within the uh, parts of the black community is huge. And then you have the uh, war against the state of Israel, and I guess this is the prime mover. The war against Israel began with the Arab League's refusal to accept the existence of Israel beginning in 1948, and that war is still on that is to say that just because Egypt and Jordan and now thankfully more recently other countries have made their peace with Israel uh, up to a point it does not mean that the Arab League has ever abrogated its war against Israel which is still on so uh, imagine this palestinian groups began to come to the united states and bring that war into the university and really make that the flagship the flag-bearer the war against it, of the modern anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism. And I could go on, but this is how I would begin our discussion, with taking very seriously the function of anti-Semitism. When it rears its head, the first question to ask is, who is using this? Who is making these accusations? Why? How does it serve them? And you see, the, the great temptation is to think that it is about the Jews. It points the finger at the Jews, but it is never about the Jews. The Jews do not create anti-Semitism. It's the anti-Semites who are the problem, and one has to really always bring the subject back to them. Now, I'm not sure that Holocaust... So one of my problems with Holocaust education is, you see that that is not usually what Holocaust education does at all. Am I wrong? (laughs) I, I think that, yes, you see, most Holocaust education has done something completely different. And unless we begin to think seriously about the functions of anti-Semitism in political warfare. We miss out on something very important in the history of the world.
1: Professor Weiss, you brought a few angles that are so important. And uh, let me just uh, briefly share your statement about using anti-Semitism through electoral process in Germany. And we can see something similar happening in Eastern Europe today after the fall of communism most of Eastern Europe with the exception of Estonia did not embrace the rule of law and protection of property rights and instead blocked efforts to establish independent judiciaries through corrupt privatizations in the 90s corrupt government officials and their partners in crime seized the most valuable assets many of those assets were originally owned by Jewish families and communities and were confiscated from from them in the 30s and 40s, and consequently nationalized by communist governments. Through denationalization, the assets were supposed to be restituted to the original owners. However, the restitution process has been blocked in many countries due to legislative measures and enforcement of anti-Semitic laws. Now, by fueling anti-Semitism, to your point, Professor Weiss, by fueling anti-Semitism, and Holocaust revisionism, the corrupt networks in Eastern Europe are accomplishing two goals simultaneously. One, they're keeping ownership of valuable assets that were originally confiscated from Jews. And secondly, they are diverting the attention of taxpayers from the pressing issues of the economy, poverty, and rampant corruption.
2: What we have overleaped is, uh, I would say, the second major force of anti-Semitism, which not in the 1870s as with the rise of anti-Semitism, but already with the rise of socialism and communism, a second form of antisemitism arose, which is the one that overtook the first form of anti-Semitism, because in the Soviet Union, And in all parts of the world where communism became dominant, and even in parts of the world where socialism became prominent, the Jews once again were the symbol of what was the evil that was being combated. So that uh, for the communists, who are internationalists, and who want internationalism to overtake both religion and nationality. The Jews are the primary reactionaries, because I think that communism expected the Jews, because, quote, they had no land of their own, to be the first to dissolve themselves into internationalism. So when Stalin, in 1929 heard about the Arab riots, the Arab pogroms against the Jews in Palestine, he declared that that was the beginning of the Arab Revolution. When Stalin learned of the Arab pogroms against the Jews in Palestine, he declared that the start of the Arab Communist Revolution. And um, he supported that. And communism supported the anti-Zionist impulse. It said that the Jews were exactly like the British in Palestine, that they were trying to subjugate the the Arabs and anti-Zionism which is now the ideology, this is the language which is being used today, not anti-Semitism, but it's now anti-Zionism, the war against Israel, has kind of replaced that other language. And there, too, it is the organization of politics against the Jews, not in dispersion any longer, but now against the Jews in their own land. So I would say that In those countries, in all the countries that were dominated by communism, the countries that you were referring to, I mean, you have a strong history of anti-Zionism, and the kind of the two kinds of anti-Jewish politics are sort of combined, right. You have the older form of anti-Semitism uh, against the Jews as individuals, as kind of aliens within the territory. And then you have the much more modern anti-Semitism, which is Against the Jews in Palestine as if they had taken the land from someone else. And they are the symbols of continuing colonialism. Uh, They are the symbols of continuing imperialism and so forth. So I would say that that is a a much greater force. The reason I somewhat push back against your formulation, which of course I recognize and, and, and understand, is because, you know, many of, those countries are trying to win back their own nationalism in some way. They're trying to reestablish themselves as sovereign countries. And in each of those countries, there is a tug of war between liberal elements and conservative elements. And one always hopes that the liberal elements are going to win out. But you see that in each of those countries, there is an internal war taking place. And, you know, I watch them With a great deal of trepidation, as you say, you know, what is being confiscated, what laws are being passed, is the government repressive, and so forth. On the other hand, realizing how difficult it is for a country to define itself, how difficult it is to define democracy in terms of each nation individually, I tend to have to suspend my outrage, let me say, until I see where it is actually going.
0: Returning to the earlier conversation that you had in regard to uh, the origins of anti-Semitism in Europe, uh, you write in The Functions of Anti-Semitism that was published in the autumn of 2017, and you write, I quote, Indeed, the origins of anti-Semitism are not mysterious. It emerged under particular Circumstances at a specific time and place. Germany in the 1870s was in the process of national consolidation, with many constituencies vying for power. And then you talk about the pamphlet that was written by Wilhelm Marr, which was uh, a anti-Semitism platform, and the pamphlet was. Called The Way to Victory of Germanism over Judaism. You also talk about Karl Marx through his writings when he pushed a narrative, I quote, uh, from your article deconstructing Judaism and reducing Jews to their economic function, Marx made them the negative force of his progressive program, unquote. Then we also fast forward a bit to uh, what Peter Drucker was talking about in his book, The New Reality uh whereby on May 9 uh, 1873 Triggered by uncontrolled speculation, there was a massive fall in the value of shares on the Vienna Stock Exchange, and then the economic depression gave rise to a wave of anti-Semitism. Then Karl Luger seized the moment when he became mayor of Vienna on April 8, 1897, and further fueled anti-Semitism in Austria, and one of the citizens of the land included Adolf Hitler. Professor Weiss, how concerned should we be about the rise of anti Semitism today when we peruse history's lessons and learn how Germany's population followed Hitler in the 1930s and 40s uh, due to Germany's economic depression? And how concerned should we be about the rise of anti Semitism today and its adverse impact?
2: Each situation has its own dynamics. And every time you see politics organized against the Jews, it is in a different context. I would say that today's context, if you want to pinpoint a beginning of it, I would begin um, in 1975 at the United Nations itself. I would say that the problem begins with the passage of Resolution 3379, Which outrageously, incredibly, defined Zionism, uh, the movement of Jewish self liberation, as racist. In that, you have uh, the uh, crux of a whole new formation of anti Semitism, a horrific uh inversion of reality and yet this was passed at the united nations itself by a coalition of arab muslim and soviet controlled forces this was a, a coalition which was very much alive for a couple of decades and in 1975 it finally mustered enough support at the un itself in order to isolate Israel, identify Israel as kind of the only illegitimate country, the racist country in the United Nations. Now, you understand, this is enormous. I mean, why go back to Hitler? Here you have the United Nations, which promised equal rights to all countries, small and large, and uh, which could never stop the Arab-Muslim war against the Jews that started in 1948. Somehow, uh, the United Nations was obliged to expel all those members who refused to accept the legitimacy of Israel. It was obliged to expel them. If you do not accept the legitimacy of a member state, according to the Charter of the United Nations, by what right do you still remain a member of the United Nations? But, of course, uh, the United Nations never wanted to expel its members, especially not such powerful members and so many of them. And this was so important to have an international organization that represented the whole world, as it were. So they kept all these nations in, and they eventually got enough power to pass such a resolution, Now, these are the ideas that have taken over uh, our times, the idea that Israel is racist, that Israel's uh, existence is somehow at the expense of of an Arab population. This is so preposterous. The Arabs have 640 times more land uh, than uh, the Jewish state, more land than, than they know what to do with, obviously. And then what you have through the Human Rights Commission, uh, and I put human rights here in quotation marks um, because it cannot be taken seriously. You have a, a conference at Durban in 2001, which is supposedly a conference for the Organization of Human Rights. And what does this Organization of Human Rights consist of? It consists of countries which are the primarily the abusers of human rights. So how do they get through this? They get through this by focusing entirely on Israel and passing resolutions against Israel so that no one should pay attention to the abuses of human rights in their own midst. Now, this is is what we are dealing with here. One cannot afford to be distracted by smaller Uh, manifestations of the problem when the United Nations itself has corrupted itself from within by becoming the world's greatest forum for the spread of anti-Semitism.
1: Professor Weiss, you shared about uh, Mitchell Barth's twenty ten book, The Arab Lobby, and the Arab Lobby's far better funded petro diplomatic complex in Washington with buy-in at American universities. You introduce a reader to Barth's chart of funding showing the many millions that Saudi Arabia and other old rich Arab countries strategically pump into several dozen American universities like Georgetown, the University of Virginia, and George Washington University. And you mentioned more than $40 million to Harvard alone. This would be a part of the Washington DC swamp being funded by foreign governments, which is skewing foreign policy to benefit foreign benefactors. Professor Wise, how can we remove foreign governments' bad influence on American foreign policy?
2: I think that it's inevitable that countries are going to try to influence uh, the United States. And I think that one will have to do it the way we do it. Uh, that is to say you have to draw attention to the uh, reality and ask for transparency in other words i think that the public has to be aware of the fact that these countries are seeking influence and i do think there's a great distinction to be made among the countries for example uh, what does it mean to want to influence the united states well when canada uh, is now negotiating with the Biden administration over the oil uh, pipeline that uh, the, uh, the Canadians would certainly like to be see extended into the United States, as was supposed to happen. Well, I think that this is something that you don't want to necessarily stop. I think that Canada is what it feels is in its own interests, and it is trying to make the argument that what is in Canada's interest can also be in the interests of the United States. And I think here is where the, the difference lies. I think that when you see countries trying to influence, it depends whether that influence is at the expense of the United States or whether it is possibly for the enhancement of the United States. When countries that are anti-democratic, that are anti-liberal, that are repressive of their own citizenry, that obviously work in a political framework which is antithetical to the freedoms enjoyed in the United States of America, when they try to exert influence, then I think one has to be very careful, because then one has to ask what kind of influence, if they are trying to influence negatively in ways that are going to be deleterious, that are going to harm this country, then I think that one has to be very careful indeed. I would make this distinction, and it's very hard sometimes to make the distinction. International affairs has never been very easy, but you draw attention to something which is extremely serious and important, and that is buying influence, for example, in the universities. Why I pointed out that is that if this money from the Saudi government, for example, and from Arab countries, if this money were being given to the universities in order to teach legitimately about the ancient Middle East or something, about the glories of Muslim civilization at its best, I don't think one would have any objection. But when uh, Chinese influence and Muslim influence is intended to undermine the way of life in the United States and to support regimes which we would not otherwise approve of, then I think these things are very dangerous because students are really lured into teachings which are, in many cases, untrue and um, and not just false, but dangerous.
0: Indeed, Professor Weiss, you have spoken about the the concerns of the BDS movement and how it has also spread across universities throughout the United States. And at that very same moment, we also begin to observe what was transpiring through President Donald Trump's administration uh, when they were advancing the Abram Accords and in normalizing relations whereby Israel was beginning to normalize relations, the countries, including Including Bahrain, UAE, uh, Sudan, and Morocco were coming to the table and to normalize their relations with Israel. Uh, We're certainly looking at what the Biden administration will do in the days, weeks, and months to come. And what are your thoughts about the Abram Accords? And do you see this being a tool, a strategic tool that brings about greater stability in the region and a greater connection with Israel between israel and the arab states uh, and other muslim nations Uh, what are your thoughts about the abram accords and its potential
2: well obviously it was a very very bright new possibility And I think that um, the reason that it seems like such a hopeful sign, really, where there was not a great deal of hope, at least on my part before, is this. Let's go back to the beginning of our conversation, practically. Everything begins with those who denied the presence of Israel, who denied the right of the Jewish people to its homeland and who organized their politics against it for their own reasons, right? They needed a target, and organizing politics against uh, the state of Israel was a very effective political tool in the Arab and Muslim world for decades and decades. Now what you have happening is that you have countries in the Arab world who, wow, they do want to accept the principle of coexistence. They do want to begin to democratize and to liberalize within. And I think you will find an exact correlation between the countries that want to become more democratic and more liberal. Those are the countries that are going to reach out and they're going to want to have relations with Israel, whereas countries which want to Continue the war against Israel are the countries which do not want to move in that direction. So I would say that the Abraham Accords, when we look at it, it's always looked at, or maybe not always, but most often looked at, oh, isn't this wonderful for Israel or is it not good for Israel and so forth? I would look at it mostly from the other point of view. I would say, look what it says about the Arab countries that are ready to accept what they should have accepted eight decades ago. Look what they're finally ready to do. And that's why I would say that is such a positive sign.
1: Professor Weiss, back to your piece, The Dark Side of Holocaust Education, and you describe the high point of a liberal alignment in 1972 between an anti-communist, human rights-oriented American foreign policy, an anti-communist culture in America, and the movement to free the Jews by allowing them to emigrate to the thriving state of Israel. And you say, I quote, Jews in particular might wish to understand that moment and savor it because it will not come again until the same opposition to radical leftism reasserts itself in American politics, unquote. Professor Wise, as we are witnessing increased attacks on our freedom of speech, and this is equally valid for Jews and all Americans, what needs to happen in America to bring the same opposition to radical leftism?
2: Oh, that's, A wonderful question. Well, what needs to happen is the realization that the American way of life, and that includes the capitalist system and the Constitution of the United States, the formulation of the United States, why this is so precious and why this is so vulnerable. I think that the first thing that is needed is a return to basics and that is to understanding how good this system is relative to all others and how it is not um, biologically transmitted. One of the things that I always repeated as often as I could to my colleagues uh, when I was at Harvard is that democracy is not biologically transmitted. And I saw the, the curricula of the best universities and the best schools in the country moving farther and farther away from appreciation of teaching of inculcation of the very things that made America so exceptional and made it the country that everyone wanted to come to. Now, I I think that the schools, the school system, and the elites of the country have really damaged the country a great deal by always thinking in terms of, oh, how can it be perfected? How can it be made better? How can we redo this? How can we undo this? Instead of making sure, first and foremost, that one says the Pledge of Allegiance and that one not only says it, but that one studies the Federalist Papers and that one understands the Constitution and one understands how miraculous it was. For these people to set up a system of government which is so extraordinary with a separation of powers. Uh, with an independent judiciary, I mean, all these things that one may take for granted, they are really at the culmination of centuries of human development. And so I would say that, you know, to stop the, what you are talking about, to stop the dangers, the encroachments of this uh, corrupt leftism, I think the first thing is that one has to really begin to understand and to teach uh, the basics of what one inherits.
0: This weekend on America's Roundtable, we have been truly honored to have Professor Weiss join us on America's Roundtable. Professor Ruth Weiss is the Distinguished Senior Fellow of the TICFA Fund. Thank you, Professor Weiss, for joining us on America's Roundtable. Thank
1: you, Professor Weiss. Thank you so much for having me. All the best to you.
0: This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I am Joel Sami. your co-host joined by Natasha Serdorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit.
1: America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena, Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. Visit iLeadersSummit.org.